It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I really um, think that the most exciting thing happening in journalism right now is the rise of the independent journalism, the independent journalist and independent journalism. There are so many uh, terrific independent journalists out there covering stories that are ignored by the New York Times, the Washington Post, MSNBC, and Fox News. And that's not to say you shouldn't be watching MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, reading the New York Times, reading the New York Post. I certainly uh, try and read as many different mainstream outlets I can. But there's this whole cadre of folks out there that are finding the stories, putting the time in, and digging deep into the stories that you won't see in the mainstream media. One of those people is uh, Lee Fang. He is a, a veteran journalist, an independent report, an investigative reporter par excellence. He's now doing some great work on uh, on Substack. You can apply and subscribe by going to LeeFang.com. That's F-A-N-G.com. We're going to tell you about some of the stories he's been breaking of late. Lee, I'm a big fan of your work. Thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hey, Frank. Nice to be here with you. Lee, uh, before we get into some of the stories that you've been covering lately, tell me what you see as sort of the future of the media. Do you see, do you share any of my optimism that the work that you're doing, the work that Matt Taibbi are doing, the work uh, that people like Glenn Greenwald are doing, is that it could actually lead to a much better media space in journalism for the consumer? Well, yeah. I, I mean, I'm I'm biased here. I'm in the independent space, and I appreciate the plug you provided earlier in the show. Um, but you know, I I kind of also agree with your analysis too. You, you know, you don't want to get all your news from just a small group of publishers from outlets. You want to have a mix of mainstream newspapers and independent outside voices, smaller outlets, so you can really understand what's going on because no one has a monopoly on the truth. Um, a lot of these issues that we're confronting as a country are big and complex. And, you know, there are a lot of partisan voices out there. There's a lot of propaganda out there to kind of cut through the noise. You do need people on the outside who, you know, they aren't kind of tethered to some billionaire or advertising pressure or, you know, some kind of ideological pressure. That's a big part of the problem in newsrooms today. So, yeah, the independent wave of reporters, and I, I guess I'm, I'm part of that, um, I, I think that can provide um, – more solutions for people, you know, more opportunities to get out of the the duopoly of just, you know, you know, the, Fox News and MSNBC are, are two partisan outlets. 
that often have a lot of yelling at each other. There's some good work that are done by both outlets, but again, you need you need outside voices. And I think the the public recognizes that. According to a recent Gallup survey, they found trust in media is so low that half of Americans now believe that news organizations deliberately mislead them. Any advice to news consumers about how they know whether they can trust what they're reading, seeing or listening to? How do you determine what what sources you can trust? You know, it's not really fair to compare myself with, you know, you know, someone's, you know, a nurse, uh, you know, uh, driving a bus, what have you, has a a regular job. Um, They're not like me. You know, every every news story I see, I try to figure out how they got that story. You know, what document did they use? Who do they talk to? I try to, you know, I, I subscribe to tons of different outlets and I'm comparing and contrasting. But that's that's not advice I can give to a normal Right. They don't have four hours to spend uh, researching after they read an article. That's true. Uh, But uh, all right. Let me ask you about a story that you brought to my attention uh, a few days ago, which uh, I think is great. And uh, well, it's not great that it happened. It's great that I learned about it from you. And to be clear, the big tech companies did a whole bunch of layoffs. It seemed like we were hearing about this each week. Google, Amazon, Facebook, all sorts of other firms laid off all sorts of workers. Now we've seen that uh, they are doing something else to make up for that shortfall in their recently laid off labor force. What are they doing? Well, um, you know, just as these big tech companies were announcing unprecedented layoffs earlier this year, starting in January, uh, around the same time in February and March, Uh, The same companies were discreetly applying to the uh, Labor Department for special visas for foreign workers, uh, high tech workers uh, to come in and and work at their firms as, you know, variety of jobs, uh, programming, software development, uh, what have you. And, uh, you know, it's under this program called the H-1B. This is something that we've had since the early 90s. It was introduced as a program to kind of just fill this technical skills gap that exists in the American workforce that, you know, if you're a very specialized firm and you can't find, you know, enough computer science grads or other kind of very technical roles, then you can go to China or India or whatever other country and and bring over uh, uh, workers on a temporary basis. Well, this program has ballooned over the last uh, 30 years. Um, There are now 600,000 H-1B workers and tech companies. There's a long history of them exploiting it as a as a way to undercut wages to kind of bring in uh, a, a more pliable, cheaper workforce to replace their American workforce. So they've laid off all these American workers and they're asking for special permission from the government to bring in foreign workers to more cheaply do the job of the workers they just laid off. Look, you know, we don't know if it's like a one to one replacement that, you know, the exact pr- person you know, that was just laid off, you know, it's a foreign worker that's brought in doing the exact same role. But look, these these H-1B visas are not supposed to be given out, not in the spirit of the law, not in the letter of the law, uh, when there are qualified Americans that are available to do the same position. Now, there are tens of thousands of American tech workers who are just laid off. At the same time, these uh, tech companies are using these foreign visas it doesn't sound like they're following at least the spirit of the law. 
Um, they could probably find American workers for these gigs. Uh, talking with Lee Fang, you can check out his website and uh, subscribe to his newsletter at LeeFang.com. That's F-A-N-G dot com. We've spent a lot of time on this program exploring the military-industrial complex and exploring the so-called national security state. Uh, you had a fascinating article about how the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI are depicting some vegan activists as potential domestic terrorists. Fill us in here, Lee. Who are these uh, vegan activists, and how do we know they're not domestic terrorists? Well, look, uh, you know, after September 11th, you know, we created the Department of Homeland Security. You know, FBI kind of had this expanded partnerships with local law enforcement, this joint uh, terrorism task force. Uh, there's been a hunt for terrorism. There's, that's certainly a, a threat that this country faces. But if you actually dig through the documents, you look at how the government's treating these activist groups. Um, I'm not sure if it, a lot of the activity that the government is is tagging as uh, terrorism uh, meets that definition. And just to kind of give you an example, you know, I, I recently obtained some documents looking at a workshop that the, the, the Department of Homeland Security ran on potential domestic terrorists that you know, their, their domestic terrorist uh, prevention program. And it was, uh, they ran in some scenarios of, of, you know, um, you know, a conservative housewife who, you know, is concerned about the unborn uh, pro-life activist. That's a potential domestic terrorist or, uh, you know, a young woman who goes to college learns about factory farming and feels upset about animal cruelty and joins some protests. Now, look, you don't have to agree with either of these views, sure. But those are First Amendment protected uh, forms of speech. You're allowed to criticize any type of behavior, policy or politic uh, in, in this country. And the government should not be treating you as a terrorist. Um, that's a red line. And, you know, uh, just th- these documents that I recently published, they fit a larger pattern. You know, in the last few years, I've been reporting on this. I published a number of other FBI documents, an internal memo, including including an internal memo from the Sacramento FBI field office, where they took a look at uh, this Berkeley-based animal rights group, uh, Direct Action Everywhere. Now, this is a controversial group. Um, they kind of believe in direct action and, no- and nonviolent civil disobedience and kind of interrupting the actions of the the, the, the business of factory farming. They go in, They w- w- this is their, their terminology, they rescue animals that are being treated inhumanely. They expose uh, companies that they say are lying to consumers. You know, some, some um, egg producers say that they, you know, use only cage-free, produce cage-free eggs or, you know, they, they abide by certain standards. And then, you know, these activists try to expose the actual conditions in these facilities. Now, that's all well and good, but, you know, you, you, you again, you may agree or disagree with these tactics, sure. but again, is, is this terrorism? The, the FBI field office is uh, depicted this group as a bioterrorism threat <laughs> in one of their their memos. Um, it's it's kind of inflated, uh, very emotional, very kind of uh, heightened rhetoric. That again, I, I, you know, this is a local law enforcement issue if they, if they engaged in trespass or burglary or whatever. Uh, is it an FBI terrorism threat? I'm not so sure about that. From your research and from your review of the documents that you've looked at. 
Is there any difference in priority on the part of the FBI or the Department of Homeland Security along ideological lines? For instance, is the uh, pro-life conservative housewife more likely than the left-wing animal rights activist to be viewed as a domestic terrorist? Or is the FBI just as quick to label a right-winger a domestic terrorist as a left-winger? Well, I don't have a direct answer to that because I don't know, you know, I, I only have the documents that I've obtained through leaks or, you know, through you know, litigation and record requests. I don't have a full view of, you know, all their decisions. So I, I don't want to speak on that. But, you know, it's, it's, you know, just like any law enforcement agency, like any prosecutor's office, there's a lot of discretion there. There's a lot of, um, you know, how, how do you deploy your resources in a way that actually stops crime, that stops terrorism? And, you know, I did, I did a story a few years ago, looking at the Iowa, the Des Moines field office for the FBI and how they put so many resources in partnering with a pork industry producer to uh, recruit an informant to to go into an animal rights group and try to, you know, um, sell the animal rights groups uh, illegal guns and drugs to kind of entrap them, you know, this this kind of uh, sophisticated FBI sting. Uh, you know, it's it's a strange kind of deployment of resources, given the other kind of potential actual terrorist threats that this country faces. And in terms of ideological filtering, you know, I, I don't know about um, uh, all the different kind of app- appendage, uh, the apparatus of the DHS and FBI, but in terms of their uh, efforts in the 2020 election, the Department of Homeland Security absolutely took a more partisan role in their efforts to fight disinformation. You know, they, they partnered with a, uh, a, a Stanford think tank that then worked with the DNC, but not the RNC in flagging potential misinformation. So in, in that narrow case, in terms of their, the, the Department of Homeland Security's fight against disinformation on social media, there was kind of a, an, an ideological tilt hmm. uh, towards at least the Democratic Party against the Republicans. On these other issues on pro-life activism, animal rights, you know, it, it's, it's really hard to say. You know, we've seen kind of what looks like discriminatory behavior by the FBI um, against certain, uh, you know, Muslim Americans, other, other groups. But, you know, again, I, I, I wouldn't want to, um, to, to say unless I had more information. Uh, talking with Lee Fang, you could check out some of his reporting at LeeFang.com. Speaking of the FBI and how they approach certain investigations, how they build certain investigations, and how, where that evidence comes from. You had a fascinating piece about the private spies that get hired by the FBI and uh, what they then do in terms of infiltrating entities like WhatsApp, like Reddit. What is a threat intelligence firm? What do they do and what does the FBI use them for? Well, this is a subset of the cybersecurity industry. And I'm glad you mentioned, I just published a two-part series on this on my Substack. You know, this is, you know, you hear cybersecurity, you might think, you know, encryption or, you know, better passwords or something. But no, this is actually a specialized type of firm that engages in a certain type of surveillance. Um, These are companies like Zero Fox, like Flashpoint. Uh, They create online aliases, online personas that go on the internet and, and find the kind of corners of the internet that you can't see publicly. You know, they, they gain the trust of, um, you know, chat room moderators, message board moderators, uh, people who run various uh, discussion groups 
um, perhaps on Reddit or perhaps on the dark web, and then they, they, they gain access to these chat groups, then they download all the conversations and they sell them to their various clients. So these firms are often um, employed by law enforcement and the FBI, but they also work for corporations because corporations are on the hunt for potential hackers, for cyber criminals. Um, but there's also, the, again, the, the issue of, of activists. You know, if you're a big corpor- corporation or the government and you're wondering uh, what activists are doing, how they're kind of planning their demonstrations, what they're, what they're doing, uh, these are firms that are tapped uh, to monitor uh, their, their, their private communications. And this raises all kinds of civil liberty concerns because you know, if you're in a private WhatsApp chat, if you're in a private signal chat, you know, that's, that's your own private communication. The government, you know, that, that raises Fourth Amendment concerns. You know, they need a warrant if it's a, your private communication. But for these kind of private sector spies, these online spies, these threat intelligence contractors, you know, they're kind of operating in this gray area where they're going into these communications and, um, you know, looking for, quote unquote, threat actors, um, whatever, whoever that may be. And then they're they're going to their clients and saying, hey, these are the potential threats. Yeah. And uh, just from how I would communicate with someone that I think shares the same views as I do on, I don't know, a- animal rights or bringing back tab soda. If I'm in one of these chat rooms, <laughs> I'm going to communicate with that person a whole lot more differently, a whole lot uh, more um, a whole lot in a less guarded manner than in if I'm hauled to an FBI field office or a police station and interrogated by a law enforcement official. I'm going to take a whole different approach and uh, may say something unwittingly that's uh, incriminating. But I guess that's what the point that the FBI is uh, is trying to do here. Yeah, I mean, it might be difficult to use those kind of communications in a, in a court case because if they didn't get a warrant first, it, it might be difficult. But just to kind of get that preliminary investigation to understand what different activists and, you know, quote unquote extremist groups are doing. Yeah. They can gather a lot of intelligence if they're faking, you know, membership in an online community or, you know, real community that has an online presence and then getting access because those are intimate conversations. Those are discussions, not just between members, but also, you know, discussions of tactics and plans. Uh, it, it It could apply to so many groups. I mean, we profiled, on the Substack, uh, one uh, one threat intelligence contractor that basically we 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 got one of their videos that showed that they they were bragging that they got into the private Telegram, which is like a kind of another WhatsApp uh, uh, phone application, what, the private chats of workers who are organizing against the vaccine mandates. These were airline workers, people who were stewardesses and uh, pilots and what have you, and you know they were organizing their strategy back in 2021 because a lot of these groups you know, oppose the vaccine mandate. And, um, you know, this firm Flashpoint, which is contracted by the FBI and they have other clients, corporate clients as well, or we're showing off that they could get into these chat groups. And, you know, of course, that, that's a more kind of conservative, or at least, you know, there are both left-wing and right-wing sure. groups that have protested the mandates, but that's at least kind of publicly seen as a more conservative movement. But Flashpoint also brags that they they infiltrate uh, left-wing uh, anti-pipeline environmental activists too you know so it's it's kind of it's both sides that are being spied upon yeah i mean it's really it's really alarming i i think most people 
wouldn't take issue with the FBI finding someone that's willing to uh, try to uh, try to per- penetrate the conversations of an Al Qaeda terrorist or an ISIS te- mm-hmm. ter- terrorist. But then all of a sudden you say we're using those same tactics and in some cases those same people and same firms to go out and investigate anti-vaccine mandate activists. That's a it's a totally different level. I think in uh, in some people's in some people's mind. Hey, uh, before we run out of time, Lee, uh, one of the stories that we've been covering a great deal, not just us, but I think every talk station in America is the uh, the situation involving crime in a lot of our cities. And uh, you're in San Francisco. There's been a lot of issues with crime, and um, apparently the police in San Francisco had a very interesting response to a homeowner after he suffered eight separate break-ins. What did the uh, San Francisco police tell this particular homeowner? Well, um, this homeowner who's actually suffered an additional (laughs) attempted break-in since I reported the story... um, he he had he had called the police over and over again um o- over the previous attempted and actual break-ins you know in, in several of these instances um in, these are these are not just like an individual this, these are planned attacks you know in one case there were two cars that showed up uh a group of criminals ransacked the home you know took the washer and dryer and uh, and then a, a bunch of other appliances and tools you know this is a home under renovation and, and brought them out to the two trucks that were waiting outside. Another time, it was in broad daylight, three guys coming up. Uh, one of them appeared to be armed uh, and, and broke in during the day. You know, after all these calls to the police, one officer finally showed up after the eighth break-in. And um, he said, look, there's nothing we can do. We, we can't we don't have the resources to go after these, these types of criminals. Maybe you should hire uh, private security. Wow. So that was the response from the police department is there's nothing we can do. Maybe you should hire private security. Look, I was in Brazil earlier this year and, you know, it's a very unequal society. There are places that um, are very crime ridden that have a lot of public safety issues. And then there are wealthier areas and everyone has, you know, gigantic fences and, 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 you know, elaborate security systems and private security and it's, you know, it's kind of jarring to see, but it, it feels a little bit like we're moving in that direction yeah. here in this country. It sure does. I'll tell you, you see the same thing to some extent in uh, certain neighborhoods in New York. Lee, I enjoyed the conversation very much, and uh, I would love to have you come back uh, soon and often because there's a lot of other issues I'd love to pick your brain on. This was really great. Frank, thank you so much for what you're doing, and thanks for having me on. Thank you. Lee Fang, check him out. Uh, check out his sub stack. I subscribe to it at leefang.com. It's L-E-E-F-A-N-G.com. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you could do so at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight.